when you're trying to make those decisions when the offer's on the table or when the human being is, whether we let them go or whatever that is, it's much harder to make in the heat of the moment than if you sort of establish some of those base principles and thinking and where that person is coming from before you actually start. This is Kristen O'Brien, Managing Editor at NFX. In today's episode, we listen in as NFX partner James Courier talks with Selena Tabakawala, co-founder of Evite, former CTO and president of SurveyMonkey, and co-founder of the fitness app Gixo. This is one of those rare interviews where you get a candid view into the hard decisions that happen behind the scenes of companies that break out from the pack and what leads to their success. This is the NFX Podcast. So I'd love to start out talking with you about co-founder fit and knowing when to start a company because you've started several companies now with Ali and I love seeing these amazing founder duos. You seem unstoppable. You just do repeat companies together. You started Evite with Al, and I guess, and then you brought on Josh Silverman about a year later. And then you uh, ran that for four years and sold it to Evite in 2001 through the big crash. And certainly in 2016, you guys started Gixo again. And then you sold it at the end of last year to OpenFit slash Beachbody. And so you guys are a dream team. Uh, how'd you meet and what drew you together initially? So our founding or meeting story is pretty funny because he lived two doors down from me in our freshman dorm at Stanford. And the first project we ever worked on together, which will, of course, age us some, it was putting, we did the first freshman yearbook on a multimedia CD instead of a physical book. That was the first time we ever worked together and really just hit it off. And he's somebody who's extraordinarily intelligent, graduated from Stanford in three years, but also very, very creative and innovative. So really has both sides of that. And my personality, I'm very detail oriented. I love the people side, but both of us come from that technical background. And so we paired up in our third year at Stanford, which was his final year in my junior year to start Evite, although it was called OodleWorks at the time. We had multiple different ideas and really just got to coding and building products. And so our experience in 2016 was completely different because we both had a series of experiences. But the thing that we knew is that, and we'd stayed very close friends, is that we were very compatible as far as colleagues and people that we could learn from each other. Fantastic. And so the school brought you together, your personalities dovetailed, but were similar enough, but different enough. And is there some feeling you feel when you see Al, when you talk to him? Mostly when you see Al or talk to him, you're listening deeply (laughs) because he is very insightful, is a little bit more introverted than I am. But when he communicates information, it is always very thoughtful. There's also just this openness and honesty that we have with each other. And when we started Gixo, literally on our first day, two of the things that we did was we laid out on a big whiteboard what type of company we wanted to build from a cultural perspective. But we also laid out what areas that we wanted to really be responsible for and what we wanted to each learn out of the experience so that we could figure out who is going to do what. Because we do have some overlapping skill sets, you know? And when you started Gixo, that was 15 years after you had sold your first company. I'm thinking back, you know, Stan Tadovsky and I started four companies together. And my experience was just that when he walks in the room, you just feel good. You feel like your best self. When you find that right partner, There's a feeling to it. There's something in your stomach. There's something in your throat or in your forehead that you're just like, I love being in this person's brain. 
Yeah. And there's also the feeling that you're both bringing different values to the table, different insights to the table, and that your ideas really grow as you bounce each other off and brainstorm. And that is really, really important because rather than it being this like competition of who has the best idea, it's really how can you collaborate and then you're coming up with different thoughts and you're willing to tell the person, hey, that, I don't think that piece works. What about this? And you have the very high, honest, intellectually honest relationship. That's right. Where you're not afraid to be wrong. I remember going back and forth with Stan over and over where I would say A and he would argue B and then he would argue A and I would argue B. And at the end, no one knew whose idea was what, but we all kind of came to consensus and never kept track of who had the idea. That's exactly right. And I think that those sort of tactical approaches to recognize when you have a relationship like that, to hold on to it because they're so precious and rare. And then also if you don't have a relationship like that, work to get one or, you know, partner up with somebody else who you do have that type of sort of levity and intellectual honesty and authenticity with because things do get hard, right? Yeah. And I think that's the other piece, which is being able to have those really, really honest conversations. So one thing I tell founders when they're just starting and they have a co-founder is there are certain tenants you should agree on up front. Even what, where would you sell? Like, I think that that's something that often people butt heads about later, but it's like, you want to actually have that conversation at the very beginning is like, okay. And the same thing around the culture of the company, what is the type of company that we want to build and how are we going to make sure that we actually build that. So it's not just these things on a wall, but if you come to a set of decisions, like Al and I literally wrote out scenarios and said, okay, if this scenario happened, how would we actually decide on it or think about it? Or what would we do? Because that also helps you understand where the person is coming from. And we did that with Gixo because we hadn't worked together in 15 years. Right. And so start with the end in mind. Exactly. Exactly. Work backwards a little bit. Yeah, because ultimately, when then when those hard decisions come, whether it's an, you know, an offer comes to the table or, you know, you're dealing with an employee issue or you're trying to figure out how much funding to take, you already establish some of that base level conversation because then when you're trying to make those decisions when the offer's on the table or when the human being is, whether we let them go or whatever that is, it's much harder to make in the heat of the moment than if you sort of establish some of those base principles and thinking and where that person is coming from before you actually start. Yeah, totally agree. And most people, I don't think, look that far into the future to look toward difficult conversations that they might need to have because it's awkward in the moment. You're not even facing the hard problems, but now you're arguing about hypotheticals. So why would you go through those hours of difficult conversations when there's no problem to begin with? Well, the reason is because you need to practice because those things are going to come up. Yeah. And you need to practice actually having that dialogue and having that conversation so that you can have that honesty and you can have that rapport when you're actually walking into it. You started Gigso in 2016, your second company after Evite, and it was the FaceTime of fitness. Is that how you'd think of it? or? Yeah. Our vision was, can we bring live boutique fitness classes to the masses. So we saw that there was this huge upswing of things like SoulCycle, Barry's Bootcamp. And what those offerings were doing was that they were keeping people longer because they were fun. They were entertaining. But the negative of them was that they're only on the coast. They're extremely expensive. And there's pretty intimidating for somebody who's not fit. So our vision was, can we take that fitness class, digitize it, and really democratize access. Um, and so that was what founded Gixo on. And were you both an instant yes on the Gixo idea, or did you have to convince each other in any way? So 
we had a set of different ideas and because we actually were in the place where we said, okay, we know we want to start a company, but we didn't know exactly what idea we wanted. We did both feel pretty passionate about health and wellness and each having gone on our, on each of our journeys. So Al had started another company in between called ClearSlide. Al's an athlete. He was a swimmer, played water polo at college. Like he is an athlete and I am the opposite. Like I am somebody who is completely clumsy, tried to enjoy fitness, enjoy being outside. And he had kind of with through ClearSlide gotten to a place where he wasn't that fit. And then I having both my kids at SurveyMonkey commuting down to Palo Alto was in a place where I wasn't that fit. And then obviously saw Dave pass away suddenly. And so we both... This is Dave, this is Dave Goldberg at SurveyMonkey. Yeah, Dave Goldberg at Survey Monkey. And so we both were in a place and he had taken some time and gotten back into running. And I had started doing a lot of walking and figuring out ways to fit in exercise and just saw this huge benefit. And so we both were really excited about health and wellness, but we did a huge amount of ideating. We had multiple different ideas of how to attack the category. We tried a whole bunch of different classes, which was pretty funny, like going to a, uh, you know, Orange Theory class in the mission and going to um, soul cycle class in the marina. And so we went and we tried a whole bunch of fitness offerings. We did a whole bunch of research. We had a few different product ideas and prototyped a bit, did a bunch of consumer research. So we didn't necessarily immediately come to the Gixo idea. But once we were able to prototype the live classes, and we really started with walking and running, we brought in a whole set of consumers, tried the biggest risk we thought in the product was, would it be weird to have essentially somebody voicing over your exercise. Because the way the product works is there's a live human being who is looking at all the data, whether it's a visual data of a camera if you're indoor, or it is actually looking at your pace, your elevation, your step count. And they're saying, they're like, hey, James, like you're about 3% away from your goal. You can push it. Or, you know, hey, Jane, you're going up a hill. I know you can do it. So they're really personalizing. And our question was, would people find that strange? Would people find it strange that someone was like watching them? And so that we felt was like one of our biggest risks with the idea. And so we really just prototyped that piece and got a whole bunch of users in to validate it. And once you had that validation, then you both felt the same enthusiasm for the idea. Yes. Once we had the consumer validation, the principle of how do we take this population of America where you only have under 25% of America meeting the basic CDC guidelines of 150 minutes a week, so 21 minutes a day of exercise and twice a week of strength training, and only 25% of Americans qualify for that. So our mission and goal of how do we get these 75% of people moving, that we held true. And then there was a question of, okay, how do we attack that problem? Had you felt like this is for a lot of founders kind of an interesting thing is what I advocate to people is only do a startup if you can't not do a startup. Like if you've got an idea in your head that's burning in your head so much you can't sleep, then okay, this is now something you should probably go do. You actually said to your good friend, Ali, you said, look, we want to start something. What's the best idea we can come up with in a reasonable amount of time that we're passionate about? That's how we did both of our startups. So in both cases, we were at the point in our lives, whether it was coming right out of college, where he was like, I want to start a company. I mean, in 1997, it was when all the startups were booming around Silicon Valley. And he said, I want to start a company. Do you want to start one? And I was like, absolutely. And then it was a matter of ideating. And this was the same case. You know, it was the right time for me to leave SurveyMonkey. Al had finished ClearSlide. And so we were both in a place in our careers where we we're excited to start something. And then it was a matter of, okay, what? 
what is the idea that we want to do? And we gave ourselves a timeline. So we gave ourselves till eight months and said, can we prototype up to prototyping two different ideas and see if we could get somewhere? And if not, then we'd go find other things. Got it. So eight months, do a bunch of prototypes, validate an idea. And if not, then go be president of another company like SurveyMonkey as you were, or he go start another company with somebody else, maybe uh, like you did with ClearSly and raise $85 million, both very successful. But eight months was the amount of time you gave yourself. Yeah, we gave ourselves through the end of 2016. And once you had identified that you were interested in this idea, did you then go and look at all the companies that had tried something like it before? Absolutely. I mean, I think that competitive and market research is extremely vital. And also, you know, a lot of founders, especially people who tried startups and then it didn't work, they're very open to talking to you about their experience. So I reached out to various founders and just said, hey, like, um, I talked to the women at Wello who got bought by Weight Watchers and said, hey, you know, would you be willing to go on a walk with me? I'll buy you a cup of coffee and like talk to me about your experience. And that to me is, I mean, obviously it's, you can do it remotely too. And, but one of the wonderful things I think about Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurs is that people are generally willing to have that conversation with you for 15, 20, 30 minutes. Because if they worked in that space and they started an idea there, it's because they were passionate about solving this problem. Right. Completely agree with you. And I'm actually surprised at how many founders don't do their research. Because look, the internet sort of started in 1994. It's been 26 years. Many of the ideas that people are thinking about today have been tried before in various formats. Yes. And it's not necessary that just because an idea was tried before that it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try that again because things change. So for example, technology shifting so fast. So the fact that, you know, obviously now used to apps on their mobile phone was compared to like eight, 10 years ago. I mean, if you look at um, if back from the 2000s, you know, the web van and grocery deliveries everywhere. So, I mean, it's not that ideas can't be redone. It's understanding why those things failed. Was it a core problem with the business model? Model, was it something in the age of time or is it actually a bad idea? That's right. It, it's almost as if people are scared to know what the mistakes were. Just by calling someone up from LinkedIn and paying them 200 bucks to have lunch with you or not even paying them, just going for a walk or them being nice and open because they're passionate about it. Or they'll tell you, you could save months and months of experimentation. You could save years of time and millions of dollars just by knowing that information. And yet it's almost as if founders don't want to know because they're afraid that if they learn too much, they might not believe in the idea anymore. And it's that naivete they're almost preserving. And I really wish they wouldn't do that. Yeah, I think there's actually two aspects. Aspects. One is arrogance that I can do it better. And then I think there's the second piece of it, which is like, I strongly don't believe in this concept of like stealth, which is like, oh, I don't want to tell anyone my idea because they might take it. An idea is a dime a dozen. It's so much about execution. And I remember... And Dave was the one who said, Dave Goldberg was the one who kept saying, he's like, stealth is stupid. Like you need to collect information, talk to people, get their feedback. Like there's this wealth of knowledge out there. And I remember there was this one, Dick Costello was doing a startup in the fitness space. And somebody had said to me, they're like, oh, well, it's too competitive. And I was like, whatever. And I went for a coffee with him and was completely open. And he gave me like fantastic insights, advice, thoughtfulness. And I just remembered, you know, what Dave had said, which is just always be open with people and you're going to, it's going to help you get the, the best information back possible. Yeah, I agree with that. So how would you guys evaluate whether the idea was worth taking the leap for? How did you evaluate your own startup ideas? So we actually had a set of criteria 
that we laid out for ourselves in terms of what all of our different ideas that we were considering. But Al and I came up with a set of criteria and it included obviously market size, competitors in the market, but it also included things like, was it a space that we're going to be passionate about? Is this something that we feel like is heading towards a mission that we want? And then also, does it match with what our expertise is? So we were both product and technology innovators, you know? And so is this a place where using product and tech innovation can actually change the landscape. And so it was both looking at what the landscape was and how we could bring our expertise to it um, to, to make an impact. Got it. So you felt like, look, we're, our strengths are in product and tech. And if this market isn't going to favor those with uh, expertise in product and tech, then, then we're not in. Exactly. And also looking at what we had actually done, which was, you know, there's thinking about product virality as something that we were both very strong in. So what are also sort of the learnings that we'd had from our career set that we could bring to the table? Right. A-B testing and viral loops and, you know, user acquisition. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Um, Very cool. So let's switch over then to viral loops, growth, virality, retention. Let's go back in time to Evite your first startup, (laughs) it seems to be quite durable. It's still kind of going, isn't it? I mean, I still receive and send evites regularly. (laughs) You know, that's been 22 years. And, you know, I know that uh, a company like Monster with a two-sided marketplace network effect, even though they went through bankruptcy, I think they're still doing 700 million of revenue despite bankruptcy. And recently we've talked to Craig from Craigslist and that product hasn't changed in 19 years and that's still servicing hundreds of millions of people a month. And so you guys started this viral consumer product called Evite, which allowed people to create events and then invite people to it. And then it would go viral and people would say, yes, they're coming. So if you were inviting 60 people, 60 people would now know about Evite. How viral was it? What was the challenge with the business? Why did it kind of work? You know, Why did you end up selling it four years later? Talk to us about that. Because it seems to be quite durable. It's amazing. The product virality was a key success of Evite. There was a ton of competitors at the time. So there was literally Time Dance, See You There. There was a load of people who tried to do the same thing in terms of the electronic invitation space. We were one of the first, if not the first product out there. But I think the big differential for us was we were very focused and pretty early on A-B testing. And so we were constantly trying to look at that viral loop and look at how do we take one of the invitees and turn them into a creator. And back Back then, I'm sure the numbers have changed, but the average Evite was 19 people. And so it was how do we take one of those 19 people and get them to essentially register and then send their own invitation out? And that was the big key that we focused on. What was that viral coefficient? And this was obviously before all these words were (laughs) kind of nomenclature in the market. And so what worked well with Evite was that we were able to do a bunch of optimization to get people to register, get people to understand the use cases and how broad they were and send out their invitations. And so we were able to grow pretty naturally. That said, one of the big mistakes we made at the time was that we took a lot of funding and it was the dot-com boom where everybody was taking a lot of capital. And there was a push towards, you know, put a billboard on 101, like put advertising on the back of, you know, on top of taxi cabs. And so we really tried a lot of also other types of marketing, really from a return perspective. And that was before 
when all what people were focused on in the dot-com era was not about revenue, but eyeballs, like how many people could you get to actually come and visit and see versus also then marrying that to advertising and how were you, what was going to be the actual revenue model. And so what happened in 2001 was that the digital advertising market also collapsed and that was kind of our main revenue stream. And so we really got to the point where we had to sell the business in order to try to get as much capital back as we could. But the product itself was very successful. And that was why when we were selling the business, people were very interested in it for the product itself. But what didn't work was we didn't do enough thoughtfulness. And, you know, we were right out of college on the business model, which was, you know, how much advertising could we really make? And therefore, how much capital should we be really spending? So we weren't focused on our basic unit economics. Got it. You know, one of the things that we noticed when we were looking at Evite was just the viral delay is what we called it, where you'd have a party and then those people wouldn't maybe throw a party themselves. Most of them wouldn't. And then some of them would, but they wouldn't do it for six months. So there was this delay before the person who got invited got sent out. Did you experience that or was that just from the side we saw that and that wasn't really a problem? I'm not sure we looked, I don't remember the numbers. I'm sure we looked at it in terms of like the delay. What we were really focused on was that for it to grow exponentially, you would need that viral coefficient to be above one. And it was always there and it was always strong and we were probably best at market, but it was not above one. So it wasn't that for every e-bike that went out, you got another creator quickly enough. So I guess that was partially the delay. Right. And there were other applications at that time, which were over 1.0, like greeting cards, customized greeting cards with Blue Mountain Arts or birthday alarm where people would set up alarms for all their friends or taking tests and then comparing your test results, which was what we were doing at the time. And Andrew Anker, who was at DC at August at the time, he invested in Evite and he also invested in, in my company, Tickle. And so that's when you and I met during these dinners and, and, and whatnot. So you've got this viral coefficient that's kind of working. You ended up selling. One of the legends I heard was that you guys got a big acquisition offer, like 180 million or something, and that the board turned it down. Is that true or is that just legend? That is true. And Al and I actually found out about it a bit late. So, and it wasn't the board that turned it down. It was one of the executives. Got it. And Al found out about it late. There was a lot of hurt feelings maybe and upset about the whole thing. Yeah. And I think in the end, it was that company that made the acquisition offer is no more. So everything happens for a reason and it worked out well. Right. So they would have offered you 180 in their currency and their currency was about to go to zero. So who knows what it would have been anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. So hard to be too upset. The whole thing was straight up. The whole thing was straight down and everybody was just riding the boat. Exactly. And so why do you think that Evite is still around? I mean, most things that were built in 1998 are no longer around. I've spoken to the CEO there now. He's a wonderful guy, Victor, and it's owned by Liberty Media. And, you know, it's a steady business. You're not talking about a billion dollar business, right? And so it's not a big enough business that you're necessarily going to have somebody try to rip it off. I mean, you had paperless posts come later, but it's still a reasonably strong business that grows nicely year over year. And it's a good product. You know, I'm a little biased, but, you know, it's solving a clear consumer need, right? Like your email is completely inefficient, you know, even Slack for getting a group together. I mean, there's particular things you need about an event and it was solving a clear need. Got it. Was there any attempt to come up with a way of broadening the appeal by building profiles or doing something that wasn't related to inviting to a party, but rather yeah. because because you, you guys did what the first CD-ROM for the Facebook. So that was an idea. And then there was InCircle. 
right? Yeah, there was Friendster, MySpace. There were so many things. The InCircle was actually built by Stanford students for Stanford, and it got just as viral at Stanford as Facebook did at Harvard. Maybe two years, two and a half years before Facebook ever went to Harvard, you know, and the people who had started that didn't pick up on that. They turned it into a SaaS product and tried to sell it. I think it was called Affinity. They tried to sell it to colleges as a directory. And then Facebook came along, just made it free and let it go. And that was the difference. Sort of like Instagram took Hipstamatic, which was a 99 cent product and then made it free and made it network. And then that turned Instagram into a billion dollar acquisition when, you know, Hipstamatic had been there for a year before they were there. So the configurations of these slight differences can make a big difference when you're at the early stages of a new trend like the internet or mobile, and you're in the consumer space when things happen so quickly. Did you think about how you might make it more retaining, retentive, or have it more have more network effects? Yes. If you look at the timeline, you know, we really launched Evite in the summer of 1998. So we started the company in the 1997, but we launched the Evite, the product in the summer of 1998 and took our first round of funding at the beginning of 99. And so, you know, the consumer business, we had some very strong advertisers. We had Finlandia Vodka, we had Pampers who'd like bought out our baby shower channel. And so our digital advertising was actually as a business model was actually going pretty well. We were looking at how we might also expand. Actually, we were looking more at the B2B side, which is the corporate events. And could we get companies to actually pay on the event side? And so we had a lot of expansion plans as well as what you're talking about, which is more community-based because everybody did have their profile and their friends already on Evite and the market crashed around us. And so the real thing came is that we hadn't raised $37 million of funding. Then you therefore looked at the return. You know, an investor at that point is trying to, especially when every company is crashing, we're just trying to get their capital back, right? And we were a good company that people were excited about the product that they could get a good chunk of the capital back. And so, you know, we had a lot of different ideas of how we might take Evite both to a more community profile based as well as to the B2B side. But, you know, the right decision for us, given the market was to actually sell the company. Got it. So you were a boat in a storm to a certain extent. <laughs> no, that can change. That can change how everything is calculated for sure. It's t- timing is so much. So then you moved on to IAC and became a bigwig there. And then you moved on to SurveyMonkey. Was there virality at SurveyMonkey just like with Evite? Absolutely. You know, SurveyMonkey was such a wonderful business. So when I joined, I was about the 18th employee. It was doing about $20 million in revenue. And it was about 85, 90% EBITDA. <laughs> it was a magnificent business. I was there for six and a half years and we were able to 10X the revenue. We grew it from being 100% US-based to about 60% US and 40% international and still had a very healthy EBITDA and also launched the B2B business as well as launched a couple of new product lines. So it was a very, very successful business for my tenure there, really excited. But the product virality was vital. And so... So we, I ran all marketing as well. And their number one essentially asset we had was the survey completion page. You know, if you think about all the dollars people spend on digital advertising, I mean, we had that page where millions and millions of people were looking at it. And it was how do we similarly, like I talked about on Evite, but how do we turn the survey responder into somebody that can do more? And so we had two different products. One was obviously getting them to create their own 
surveys and become a paying customer. And the second was to actually to join the panel for SurveyMonkey audience, where every time they took a survey, we gave money to charity, but people could essentially buy that audience to do market research. And so that viral page was the page we did tons of A-B testing on, constantly learning, and is the biggest ad page you could essentially have. So, so much was built into product virality at SurveyMonkey. Got it. It's almost like DocuSign should be doing the same thing. It's not as well done as what you guys did. So you had virality there and that was very valuable to you because someone would take a survey, they'd realize, oh, I need a survey. I just took a survey on this cool tool and they'd go back to it and then they would just adopt it. It would go viral within companies, I suppose. Yes. I mean, both within companies as well as, I mean, if you looked at the broad spectrum survey monkey use cases are, you know, it was, it's across nonprofits, it's across education, you know, people using it for their school teams, as well as all the business use cases. So HR for all their employee feedback, marketing for all their customer feedback. And so you do see it spread virally within organizations. And that's where we launched sort of like the enterprise accounts, but you also see it spread within one person uses it for their nonprofit and you're a recipient. And you're like, oh, I can actually use it. And one of the biggest things on that page, the viral page, was actually exposing those use cases to people and starting to learn about what use cases were the right use cases to expose to them, depending upon whether it was the first time we were seeing them or so forth, but really starting to optimize sort of how we showed people the breadth of what you could use SurveyMonkey for. Do you remember what the examples were that worked the best? In terms of which use cases? Yeah. Which use cases did you put in front of them that just lit people up? It was actually very dependent upon what type of survey they were responding to. So what we saw was that somebody's responding to an HR survey. It was actually more of the customer feedback market research because you knew that they were essentially an employee at an organization. If somebody was responding to like, you know, a survey coming from an education or a student or whatever, then it's more of the casual use cases. So it was really starting to think about what were the different use cases you could show to that person. And the other thing we found was that people responding to multiple surveys is making sure that user through their different survey responses was seeing different use cases. So it was really trying to hit people up with that variety as well. I just remember in sort of 2003, 2004, people A-B tested the crap out of all these ads and realized that win a free iPod, the number one clickable ad. And so everyone was using that ad for about 18 months until it wore out. And then later on, I remember Groupon and social whatever was competing. And they both figured out that a cupcake on the ad was by far the highest click through. So they were both like cupcaking the whole internet. And so I was just wondering if there was a use case that just lit people up, like figure out what to name your dog or something like that. We were trying to drive more of the business users. So it's definitely more of those use cases, but so much around listening to your customers, that was always such a strong use case because it's like, don't you care what your customers think? Like as soon as you push that on people, they're like, oh yeah, of course I want to know what my customers are thinking. Can't say no to that. So then you moved off and did the Gixo thing. Is remote exercise naturally viral? One of the big learnings we had is fitness is not that viral when you start thinking about the non-fit customer. So it was a really big learning we had. And so when you think about consumers like the Strava, or you think about consumers that are fit, of course, they want to share like, here, look at me. I'm this like super fit person taking a sweaty selfie or look at my 80 mile bike ride. But when you start looking at everybody else in the US who is working on a fitness journey is somewhere along that spectrum. And if you look at all the academic research, like people generally tend to surround 
surround themselves with people that are about the same fitness level as themselves. You don't necessarily want to be sharing out all these sweaty photos or sharing out that you did this workout. It's your personal journey. And the other thing that we found, which was really interesting, is we had these users asking us, they're like, we love your product so much. Do you have swag? And then we'd look at whether or not they like had shared and referred friends and so forth. And they hadn't. And so we asked them, we're like, hey, you obviously love the brand. You obviously love the product. Like you are making your own t-shirts or leggings with our logo on it. Why aren't you sharing it? And, you know, their perspective was like sharing a workout app with my friend. Like they're going to think I'm calling them fat. And like, that's not something that I want to do. But if I wear your shirt or I wear your leggings and my friends are like, what's Gixo? That gives them that opportunity to ask. And so it's the best way I can sort of like share your product without insulting my friends. And so that was one of the big learnings we had that actually is partially why we decided to sell the business because we realized that to grow Gixo, we would need to take a large, large amount of capital to create a brand. And if you look at fitness brands and you look at companies, I mean, Peloton has been so successful and it's a great company, great CEO, but they've raised a lot of capital you know, and you have to build that brand. And that was something that became very clear to us that virality is not as natural in fitness as it is in some of these other spaces. Yeah. And it's not in healthcare and it's not in fintech. People don't say, hey, I got this great credit card or, hey, I got this great bank account. There are certain consumer categories where they just don't really want to talk about it. And the thing is, is you get skewed a little bit by it in Silicon Valley because everybody shares these crazy exercise things or crazy hikes or whatever. But when you start looking at the rest of everywhere else, and that was the customer we wanted to attract. I mean, we were a very, very diverse group of customer base. And it wasn't sort of your city urban wealthy. And that's not who we wanted anyway. Like our target was how do we actually make change? Was it the Curves users? Yeah, definitely. Many of our listeners might not know about Curves. This is one of the largest franchises in the United States, and it's these small form factor exercise clubs, mostly for women, busy moms in the middle of the day, and then other folks who don't typically go to gyms who feel safe going to Curves. It's such a big market. It's underserved and sort of in the shadows. So I think that's smart for you guys to go after it, but it wasn't particularly viral through word of mouth, I guess. It's a huge market, and we've been continuing the product growth with OpenFit. There's huge opportunity. We're doing super very well, but it is something that requires a lot of capital. And any growth strategies that have surprised you that work? Yes. So, you know, if I'm thinking about growth strategies throughout the journey, and then I'll talk about talk about Gixone Fitness specifically. But I think that everyone does really talk about the importance of A-B testing. But I do feel that when you start digging into companies, they're still generally, it's not productized well enough. And so really from the start, building in that from even as a founder, you're not going to get statistical significance, but building in from the start, the platform and basic ways to put users into buckets and see what users are doing, because you start to, at least get some of those trends quickly and learn quickly. And that is as far as understanding those top of the funnels of users coming in, how do I optimize that? But the biggest, biggest issue with most products and most apps is how do I get that first user to get started? How do I get them to engage initially? And testing different experiences there and constantly, I mean, I had kind of a saying, which was like ABT, which is like always be testing, right? You always want to be running an onboarding test or a new user engagement test at all times. Because getting that initial user to start, whether it's to 
send that survey, whether it's to send that invitation, whether it's to actually go exercise, like that is always the hardest challenge when, you know, it's easy to download an app and it's easy to log onto a website or start a free trial, but getting that user to take the first action is so hard. Yeah, we often call that activation where yeah. you know, we describe it as the moment at which the user understands the glory of what you're providing them. Mm-hmm. And it usually means they actually have to do something. Right, exactly. It's that give and take. And how do you get that person to ease them into that give and take? And I think the other thing is people are often wary of kind of asking a user questions. And I've just found more and more that people are willing to answer those quick questions so that you can get to that experience that is more customized and personalized to them. And I think that's also underused. You've seen that great success with Stitch Fix with that. Obviously, if you think about all of those different onboarding techniques, that is one that I do feel like is underutilized is consumers are very willing to answer quick questions and provide you a certain amount of information so you know what is the right experience to give them. Got it. Yeah, you can't be scared of them. Just have a dialogue. Be one with them. Often often as builders, we just feel like, oh, I'll build it and then they'll do it or they'll not do it. But in fact, there's an intermediate space where once you start engaging them with whatever you've built, you can start to learn very quickly just by actually talking to them. Sometimes people are fearful of that. And it's really also starting to think about what are those light touch engagements you can get them to do initially. So it is potentially just getting, answering a couple questions, giving them some information back. But it's like, how do you get, how do you think about what are some of these light touch engagements initially or activations initially so that you then can get them to take that really retentive step? And I think the other big piece is really starting to look at what are the characteristics of people who retain? Obviously, getting a user to stick with you once you've acquired them. There is no nothing that you can do. Every 0.1% improvement in churn will have a massive impact on your long-term business, right? So churn, monitoring churn, especially in consumer businesses is all I know, but like constantly monitoring that churn. But it's also starting to figure out and look at as quickly as possible, what are the characteristics of the users I'm acquiring that retain better? And what can I get them to do in the activation stage? What are those one, two, three things that I get them to do that then actually ties to churn? And I feel like that not making sure you're actually looking at those cohorts is also something that is just absolutely vital for growth because you start to then think about it's not just the activation funnel and then optimizing the churn. It's actually looking at those cohorts all the way through. Yeah. Someone asked me, what's your job? And I said, I am a cohort triangle chart reader. (laughs) You know, we've talked about virality and virality is great. Virality being your users getting you more free users and that's fantastic, but it's not the same as network effects. Network effects is about Retention and other things are about retention. Yes. The businesses are really built on retention because that means defensibility and defensibility creates value. And that's, you got to really focus on those cohort charts. A lot of people find them boring or intimidating, but you can't. You have to love them. You have to look at them daily. And I actually think also, too, with a lot of startups, as you say, like, oh, well, there's not enough data here to be significant or there's not enough data to learn. I feel like if you build in those tracking components right up front and you start filling those cohorts, you'll start to see trends quicker than you realize. A question I want to ask you about was the Gixo name, because when you're trying to get something viral and you're trying to get something to somebody to stick around and use your product, your brand to them is the name, right? I mean, it's absolutely when you're not in the room. That's the thing that they're talking about when they're at their inbox and they're looking at this invite to this new thing. That's what's leading is the name. How did you think about the name? Why did you name it Gixo? And do you think it was successful? 
The Evite name was obviously very successful. And I do think that it was a contributor to why we were able to be the only product that's still here 22 years later, because it was that simple. It was an electronic invitation, you're an Evite, and it became a verb. With Gixo, you know, we were in a different place where literally for about I'd say 15 years, Al had liked the name Gixo and had bought the, paid the $9.99 fee to keep the URL. And so we had this domain, Gixo.com. And the reason I liked it is because I really felt like we could, I just, I love the sound of it. It sounded powerful. And I liked the fact that we could take the G and the O and make our app icon is go, like just go, just get moving, just go. And that was like the thinking around it. And I did some like basic customer research where I called, you know, 10 people and I said, okay, if I said the word Gixo, how would you spell it? And then for another people, I said, if I spelt you G-I-X-O, how would you say it? And, you know, most people got it right. And I thought, okay, let's go forward. And so I think there's this question of when you're building a brand, you pick this word that nobody knows and means nothing. And do you turn it into a brand or do you try to take something that means something? And so it's easier to understand. You know, there's pluses and minuses to both. I'm not a branding expert, but the plus of making something like SurveyMonkey, which is clear, everyone knows their surveys, is that it's clear. The negative negative is when you start expanding into other spaces, then it's harder. And so that's just the trade-off. You know, I don't know if the business where we got acquired by OpenFit, I really actually love the brand name and feel like, you know, you're trying to make fitness available and open to everybody. And so it is both something that I think we can own, but is also clear what it is. So I wouldn't say Gixo, looking back, maybe was like a smashing success, but I still, it holds a place in my heart. Yeah, definitely. No, it's an important decision. And I think often founders don't understand how important it is when they're making that decision. And it's good that you speak to it that way. I've got to say that I feel like the name SurveyMonkey was so good. It was so sticky, so spellable, so fun, you know, so encouraging it to be viral that, you know, it was really unstoppable once that name got out there. It was really genius. Let's dive into selling and being acquired from the founder perspective. Okay. So, most of the audience of these early stage founders, few of them get candid exposure to how companies are actually bought and sold. So you're at OpenFit now, which is a division of Beachbody. Is that right? It's a wholly owned division of Beachbody. Got it. And Beachbody is a PE owned fitness brand down in LA. It's actually founder owned mostly. Founders still have a controlling share. That's great. That's fantastic. It's a billion dollar revenue business. It's incredible. It's a big media business. They started out selling VHS tapes or something. And yeah, P90X. P90X, right. So how did you make the decision to sell? And can you walk us through the timeline of how that all went? Sure. So we made the decision to sell based on a number of factors, but the biggest was this question that a little bit of what I was talking about, which is the capital raise that would be required. So we got to a point, we had only raised our seed funding, although we had a pretty big seed round. And well, what does pretty big mean? It was about 5 million in total that we had raised. Got it. And when did you do that? 2016? We did the most of it in 2016. And then we did get one extension in 2017, right after we launched. Got it. So five million bucks. How many people at the company? Nine. But we got to the point where we realized the business wasn't going to be viral. And so we were going to need to raise a massive round of funding in order to really build a brand. 
And so as we were having that conversation of like starting to look and starting to have some of those conversations initially with investors, we also rain venture group and we had pitched them on funding round and rain PE is one of the investors in Beachbody. But we also talked to our investors, Greylock, who was extremely supportive, as well as Damon Cronkey, who was at Exceed Capital and just said to them, hey, you know, we're at the stage where we'd be open to both. Like we'd be open to raising a big round or we would be open to selling the business because we weren't sure in that, you know, our business was doing well, but it wasn't crushing it. You know, there wasn't this like, you know, our unit economics, like our payback time period was had come down to about 12 months of our CAC. And, you know, investors what really want to see about a six month payback period. And we were constantly improving. Like we had been at a two and a half year, we brought it down to 12 months and we were constantly iterating and improving, but it still became clear that we needed to build a brand. Selena, when you say a massive round of funding, is that 20 million? Is that 60 million? From my perspective, it was like, you know, if we were going to do an A, you ideally wanted to raise somewhere around 15, 20 million. So you could really start putting to the pedal, to the metal on marketing and drive that CAC down and figure out how to actually. And that was my perspective was like, we needed to raise a lot more. But at the same time, we started talking to investors. You know, we certainly weren't getting money thrown at us. It was like, hmm, this is interesting, but it's like, you know, you guys are doing okay. They were really excited about the team. The space was pretty exciting. But at the same time, a lot of investors didn't love the fact that the demographic we were targeting was this middle of America and not the wealthy Peloton customer, you know, because we we literally got some VCs telling us, well, I don't think my wife would use your product. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I just put my head in my hands, you know. And so, But at the same time, so that was like one factor. We knew we were going to need to raise this big round. Our conversations were okay, but not necessarily like crushing it. And then we basically was speaking to Rain and then they said, hey, they introduced us to Carl Deichler, the CEO of Beachbody. Sat down with Carl for an hour. We really hit it off. And he was basically like, hey, this is something we're very interested in. At that point, I thought it was important to bring other people to the table because in terms of other potential acquisition offers, like you never want to have just one offer on the table because you have literally no leverage. And so we were at this point where it was like, do we go out and raise this round, which I thought, I think we could have gotten done, but Al and I were starting to figure out what those terms would be and how much we would be diluted. And, you know, they weren't going to be like fabulous versus meanwhile, we had done a very strong seed round. And then we had this one Beachbody, very interested party. And then I was able to get another party to the table that was somebody we had been having partnership discussions with. And that is one thing I will say to early stage founders, which is if you have people where you may, at one point in time, they may be somebody that somebody that could acquire you, it is important to start building those relationships early, even if it's just exposing yourself, talking about partnership. Then when the time comes, I was able to pick up the phone with this woman at this company that I we had started talking to about a partnership and said, hey, you know what? There's somebody interested in acquisition you're a company that we love. Do you guys be interested? And so we're able to get two people to the table. And that made a very big difference in terms of the negotiating leverage that we actually had, because suddenly you have two potential acquirers at the table. And, you know, Al and I, I think I mentioned, we had decided on sort of like where we would sell at at the beginning. And our risk tolerances were just a little bit different based on our sort of history. You know, Reed Hoffman, who was our board member and who is just a fabulous advisor and mentor, 
webinar, he said, when you have two founders, you always want to think about the lowest common denominator, because if you don't take an offer and your other founder wants to sell, and then you work at this for two, three years, and then you can't even get that same liquidity for your other founder, how can you look them in the eye? And that advice was so prescient, you know, which is like, you really want to make sure you're having, like I said, that open conversation with your co-founder, but I can go into more of the details of the process if it would be helpful for you or if that summary is good. That summary is great. So Selena, how do you know when you want to sell? What are some of the key catalysts or the problems or the opportunities that made you realize you wanted to sell in both, you know, Gixo and Evite? So Evite and Gixo were pretty different circumstances. With Evite, we had taken a lot of funding. So we'd taken $37 million in total funding. And it was very, very clear that that path to get a financial return for the investors, given the market crash in 2001, um, or late 2000 was just going to be vastly too hard. And so at that point, we got pressure from our investors to sell. And there was really no way, and we had lost majority control, there was no way there was like a path to a high return. And so at that point, investors were taking the approach of just getting back whatever capital they could from properties that still had some value. And because Eva had built this brand, it was a question of, okay, let's go and try and see if we can sell the business. And so that was the reason we went and sold that business. It was actually Actually, in retrospect, you know, it would have been difficult to get to a point where we had in a reasonable amount of time, even a 150, 200 million dollar valuation. And you think about investors, they're looking at least for that sort of 5x return, if not really that 10, 100x return. And so with Gixo, it was a very different story. We had taken a lot less capital and we were in this fork in the road that said, okay, do we need to go and raise this pretty large slug of capital? And then we had somebody come to us and approach us about selling the business. And so the fork in the road was sort of this bird in hand versus going out and raising. And as I think I'd said, we had had some conversations and it wasn't like our raise was going to just be thrown at our laps. It was going to be very, it was going to be potentially there, but also difficult to do. And so that was really for us, it was that fork where we said, okay. And the real thing we sat down with was the all of the numbers, which was if we take a round of funding at this valuation, what return would we need to get to end up in the same place where we would end up today? And so there becomes this decision of, so that's just the pure financial side. And then it's, are you willing to take that risk? And that becomes a very, very personal decision based on what else has happened in your life, right? And like, and where you are. You and Al might have had different opinions about that. Exactly. And we did have different opinions about that. And our investor, Reed, is just extremely insightful. And he said to us, you know what you need to do is look at the lowest common denominator. Like whichever founder has the lowest risk tolerance, that has to be the risk tolerance you guys go with. And it made so much sense, right? Because it's hard to push someone to be more risky. It's easier to push somebody to be less risky. If you, as the person who want to go forward and the other person wants to sell at that price, if you then don't sell the company and the company implodes and you both get nothing or you both aren't feeling successful, then they might never forgive you, that sort of thing. Yeah, you have this ultimately the people and the friendship are going to be, you know, most important things in life, right? And so being able to look someone in the eye, as you said, two years later, if your company implodes, look at the current environment, current economy, you know, it so happens that exercise is doing really well, but you couldn't predict what comes ahead of you. Right. And you had mentioned this insightful way of looking at how to decide if the price of something is enough as you face another round of financing. So for instance, often when a company is in play, quote unquote, 
you're either raising a round of funding from investors, they could be VCs or strategics, or you're looking at acquisition. And what I've seen, I'm sure you've seen this too, is when one starts, a bunch of them might start, both M&A exactly. and fundraising. So it's often the case that you have you know, concurrent discussions going on at that time. And you had an insightful comment just now about, you said, look, if we're going to raise another 20 million, we're going to get diluted. And therefore, we're going to own X percentage of equity for us. And we've got this other offer, let's say it's $20 million or $10 million. We will make X amount if we sell today, or we could go another two years after raising this 20 million, but we're going to have less percent. So what would we need to sell for after getting that dilution? in order for us to make the same amount of money? And then what's the risk between now and then of actually getting there? I would add dilution and preference because the other thing is, as you raise which later rounds of funding, often there's more preference clauses, which is investors need to get you know two extra returns before other people on the stack start getting returns. So you have to think about it as both raw amount plus the preference stack. Yeah, absolutely. And how much had you raised for Gixo, for instance? We had raised about 5 million. About five million. Okay. So that was a preference stack that was sitting on top of your common. Yes. But often in earlier rounds, you're able to get lower liquidity preference multipliers, right? So in earlier rounds, you might only have a 1x multiplier. So investors just get their capital back and then it starts going to common. As you start going to later rounds, you know, and it also depends how competitive the rounds are, then you often get to a place where you're not, it's suddenly not a 1x, right? There's more than just the dilution percent you need to consider. You need to also think about at what point do different people start getting capital. Right. Gets more complicated. And as investors do that all day long and founders are only doing this financial engineering with a small fraction of their time, the founders are typically at a disadvantage. A far disadvantage to get that understanding. As a founder, you're raising three, five, six times in your career. I mean, investors are doing it, understand the terms much, much better. You know, I think depending on good lawyers is very important, but also it's really getting advice from other founders. Agreed. And let's talk about the acquirers. How do you think you should go about building relationships with these potential acquirers? Because you were in the Gixo, the second case, you were approached by a potential buyer. I mean, any tips to share about how early you should start talking to potential acquirers or and then how you build those relationships? So I feel very strongly that early stage startups need to start thinking about who strategic partners would be and whether that's more so you start building those relationships. Can I stop you there? You just used the term strategic partners. Isn't that just a euphemism for buyers? So potentially it could be, but in other cases, it could actually also be real partners, right? Where if you think about a brand that you may want to partner with, so we were talking to various brands that might be, we had fitness that had nutrition, for example. I had started a set of those conversations early because very few large companies are going to partner with really early companies. But as you start growing and share traction, you've already built some of those relationships or if they're in their strategic discussions are starting to think about it expansion, then at least you'll be front of mind and center. So, you know, it's not starting to build some of those relationships with that relevant business development person or strategy person in those larger companies and have those conversations. That was something because then what happened was, is when we did have one offer on the table, it allowed me to go back to some of these people that I already had relationships with and say, hey, we actually do have an offer on the table for getting acquired. And if this is something you might be interested in, that allowed us to bring another buyer to the table and that gave us leverage. 
It's a great story because it's an interesting dance because it sounds to me like what you're saying is as a founder, it's a good idea to go to larger companies and propose biz dev deals, business development yeah. deal where you're partnering for sure. You're not, but sometimes if you start to move into the words of a strategic partnership, then they're like, well, what are you really looking for? Are you looking for a biz dev deal or are you looking for an acquisition? There's this between M&A on the one side and business development on the other. And then this word strategic partnership is in the middle. And how you use those words and who uses those words ends up determining where you end up in the corporation you're partnering with. And now what we've seen is that business development deals can be a pain in the ass and most of them don't work. Channel conflicts, interest, da, da, da. But on the other hand, it really helps you decrease your downside if you establish them early because then it gives you option value later as you're realizing stuff about your business. I think, is that something that resonates? That resonates really, really well. And I think obviously it's a managed, I tend to agree with you that often business development deals don't lead to that many brand new customers. And I think, so you have to be pretty thoughtful about how you're making them. But I do feel that, as you said, that having those insights into what's going on in the market and talking to some of the larger companies and really does help in terms of also get some insights into where the market is going. And also, like you said, it gives you some potential long-term options. Right. And you're advocating that founders should start that as early as possible. Absolutely. I think that everything comes down to time that you're spending, right? And you want to be mostly focused, you know, the 85, 90, 95% when you're early internally focused, right? Because you're trying to build, you're trying to figure out the product, you're trying to figure out, you know, for B2C where you're obviously focused on client side, but there has to be a portion of your time that's reserved for external, whether that's, you know, understanding the market better or talking to partners, you know, there's obviously the talking to investors part, which sometimes takes 100% of your time. But, you know, having some of that balance of keeping your ears and eyes open, like as a CEO or a founder, that's really, that is part of your job. Yeah. And it feels to me like that might be a characteristic that distinguishes, you know, great founders from merely good founders, which is that the good founders end up a year or two in without a lot of options because they didn't put in the extra time to go make all these relationships in the market. And so they're left without options. And so they might end up shutting down their company rather than getting a small acquisition out of it. Yeah, for sure. So maybe it's not 95% and maybe it's 100%, but then you add another 5 or 10% where you just do the extra legwork to go out and make these relationships. And when you're talking with them, you know, are you candid with them about wanting to get acquired or do you have to play a little dance? Do you have to say, well, we're looking for, do you go in saying you want a potential acquisition later on down the road or do you just never say that? So, you know, I don't believe in building a company to get acquired. Like, I think that you need to build your company with the idea that you want to grow it build it to go public or build it to be a, you know, a big brand. And that's what we set out to do. I think that if you have the view from the beginning that I'm building this to sell it or flip it, you're not going to make the right day-to-day business decisions. You know, I don't necessarily feel like that you would be going to this, the BD partners and saying from the beginning, like, hey, we're looking to get acquired. I think that you have to find places where those partnerships can actually make sense for your business. And as you said, they don't always pan out with a huge amount of customers, but there is still a lot of value in many ways in terms of starting to build those relationships. One of them may be that if you get to a place where you either have an offer on the table, you have other people to go back to, or if you get to a place where you kind of need to get acquired, that you have people to go talk to. I would never, ever advocate for running your business in a way where you're trying to get it to get acquired. 
Super important point. Absolutely agree. And once you're in the process, though, once you've been approached like you were at Kixo, how do you work to get multiple offers on the table in the same time frame? So at that point, I think it is okay to go back to people and be more explicit, right? Because at that point that you have something on the table and you don't want to leave that buyer, you know, you also don't want to leave a bad taste in that mouth that maybe your future employer, if it's an offer that's reasonable, And, but at that point you want to go pretty aggressively. We kind of went to five different people and said, Hey, look, you know, you're somebody who I like, I respect your company. I respect your values, like places where you could see yourself finding a nice home and saying, Hey, you know, we have an offer on the table. You're somebody I'd really like to work with. Is this something that your team might be interested in? You know, we did that to about three to five other people. And then one ended up coming to the table with an offer as well. Got it. So you had two in the end with Kixo. So in the end, we had two. That's really all you need to get leverage to have a discussion. Yeah. And did you use intermediaries or did you have direct relationships with, with these potential acquirers? In one case, one of our investors had a relationship with their investor. In another case, it was just a direct relationship. Got it. But you didn't hire like a small eye bank or anything to do? We didn't. We had some very helpful people who are already investors who helped a lot through the process. Got it. So with Gixo, Selena, what were the factors that precipitated that first offer to acquire your company? So what happened was, is we had gone and pitched a firm that has both a VC and a private equity arm. And the VC for the fund, for our funding, their private equity arm was a primary investor in Beachbody OpenFit who ended up acquiring us. And so we pitched the VC firm and they had a conversation with their PE side and that's kind of how it came about. So it was a little bit of sort of just luck in the process. And then I met the CEO of Beachbody and was just very impressed with him. Mm-hmm. Got it. I love pricing psychology. Who puts out the first price? And I was at HBS and they teach you that you should anchor. You want to be the first one to put out the price to anchor the conversation. But in practice, I've seen that whoever puts out the first price loses. What was your experience with that? It's a really interesting question. I think that I, you know, I'm trying to remember who actually put out the price. I think we ended up putting out a range, you know, based on the fact that, you know, what we had, where we had received our valuations plus kind of where we were. So I believe we put out a range um, that we would be open to having a discussion with. Got it. So you did it, you did it first just to help, you know, move the conversation along because they asked you to and you felt safe enough and respected enough by them that you felt safe enough to put out the first number. And when you gave them a range, did they hear the lowest end of the range? Yes, of course. <laughs> they always start at the lowest end of the range, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then it becomes a negotiation. Yeah, from the bottom. So if you say 20 to 25, then they hear 20 and then they start at 15 or 12 or something. Yeah. Not that much lower. I'm not trying to get the numbers for geeks. So I'm just saying people who are listening, like. I said, I don't think they come in that much lower than your range if they're serious. That makes sense. Depending on the relationship that you're building with them. You know, look, there's, during these acquisitions, there's this funny dance, right? You're the CEO. You've got all the stakeholders. You've got your investors. You've got your employees. You've got the potential acquirer. And everyone needs to be talked to in the right order. So when did you tell your investors that this is what you were thinking about? So we told our investors very early. We told our investors we were open to getting acquired as we were having some of those fundraising conversations. And also Reed was our main investor and who's somebody that was just a consistent advisor for us. So when he doesn't play any games and he's been around the block a hundred times and he's really here just to make sure that you're successful. And so you can have that kind of an authentic conversation with that kind of an investor. 
Exactly. And that was important to us when we were looking for who we wanted to take investment from. You know, Al and I were not sort of first time founders and we were looking for somebody who was a strong investor as well. And and obviously Reed was unbelievable. So we were pretty open there. And then obviously with employees, we were also pretty open because a big part when you're talking about products and technology, a big part of it is, you know, is this something that the employees would be excited about or not? And because, you know, especially when most of your team is a group of engineers, we were pretty open in terms of that, hey, we're looking at both a fundraise and potentially, and we're going to be open to acquisition depending upon what comes to bear. Got it. And did you feel that there was a diminution of productivity or people buzzing and, you know, what's my equity going to be worth and people getting really distracted? You know, I think that in general, employees understand. And, you know, we had a small team. We were eight to 10 people. We worked together very closely. And as long as people understand what you're doing and why, I feel like people are pretty good with it. Like, here's the goals we're trying to get to. I mean, ultimately, whether you're trying to do your next fundraise or you're trying to get acquired, the better your numbers are, the better the outcome is going to be for everybody. You know, as long as you're staying focused on what are those three to five key metrics we're trying to work on as a business and we're trying to improve those people want just to, I think employees actually appreciate the fact that you're saying, Hey, we're open to options and we're going to see what's best for everybody. Uh, Selena, this has been great chatting with you. So insightful and so wonderful to hear all the stories. And I think that people who listen to this podcast are going to really appreciate it. So thank you for your time. Well, take care. You've been listening to the NFX podcast. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the NFX Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information on building iconic technology companies, visit nfx.com.